Um, I'm going to try and turn off all of the equipment <laughs> so it seems less silly. I will just have a chat and uh, I lecture to some of you during the day, sometimes, occasionally, now and then. And I spend a lot of my time being very, very serious. No, not really. Um, but, you know, uh, so today I don't want to give. It's still doing it, it's still making noise. Stop, stop. Don't make noise. Anyway, the feedback is dreadful when you're like, hello, and it's just so lonely with the echo. <laughs> Never mind. Um, so I don't want to, I don't want to sort of um, turn up and say, this is how it is, and here's some material from sociologists, and um, here's an academic uh, piece from this or that or the other kind of place. Um, Jared very kindly asked me to speak about uh, moral panics. I'm kind of aware that uh, people study moral panics in the sociology of deviance or the sociology of the media or something like that already. And so I'm going to kind of go through that and float through that and maybe at some point in this, but sort of try to drift in another direction. But also, um, I'm going to uh, invite you to, to help me do this, uh, because it's, it's not a moral panic if we're not all aware of the sorts of things we're talking about. Because it's not a moral panic if you haven't heard of it, you know. Uh, so maybe you can help me fill in these crimes. And um, eventually, just in case you're very sensitive, eventually I will talk about horrific things. Uh, but not straight away. But if you're very sensitive, <laughs> you may feel that it might be good to leave uh, and once we get to the part with the pictures, even though it's only a picture of, of a summer's day. But it is very, it's very gruesome. And you all know about it anyway, so it's, you know, this, can, this can hardly be too traumatic to people. So this is, this is, um, this is what I decided to do. I work very hard. I didn't... I didn't... Uh, I didn't, there is more, <laughs> you know, but there's a, there's a standard, you know, um, I think you're the criminology society, so, you know, you all are, you know, criminologists in the, in, 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 in the making, and this is how you do lecturing, you sort of figure out in advance what you're going to say, and then you put in the details later on when you come to the thing, but we could do this now. What are the crimes, what are the recent events which might count towards uh, the case. I was talking to, I, I forget your name, young gentleman. Um, but, um, you know, we were talking about this on the way out of another class, and we came up with six things straight away. Let's not talk about the Cameron Blair thing, just in case people are uh, knowing that. But, um, yeah, will anybody help me by doing insert crime case? You don't have to insert picture. What are, this, what are, the, what are the crime cases around which we said the one with the homeless guy who had his head chopped off? Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned the guy who was set on fire. Any, any other ones that are similarly level of spectacularness? Yeah, the 17 year old who got caught. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They did the little. Yeah, those are the ones we came up with. Are there any other recent spectacular pieces of violence that come to mind? I mean, there's the, the Drahada thing, the ongoing drug, drug war in Drahada or something like that. Like, it's, that's kind of very visible. Um, and then you could insert a picture and you know you could say look at this crime what do we do what do we think about this crime and then you do this and you make it worse and then you know keep on going and build up the crime cases and so on and so forth and then um, 
begin to titillate your audience by sort of going into the details, more gruesome details. There's a sort of, there's a sort of, um, back in the day when there was no PowerPoints, uh, academics used to do a thing called academic striptease, where they had an overhead projector and a piece of paper on, a, on an acetate, you know, the transparencies, and bit by bit they'd move it down, showing you more and more interesting things, like, oh, did you do? And then eventually they'd keep a bit at the end and say, no, I won't show you this, you know. It's a kind of art to that as well. It's quite, it's last. I've done that, I'm that old, you know. Uh, and then after that, and this is a standard thing that academics do, well, if you do presentations nowadays, don't you, for various classes? So you do media reaction, you have, you know, you have a collage, and you say, it's the broad show sheets, although in this picture I could only find tabloids, because that was the only thing on Google Images, and, you know, I do have a life, or something like that, and, and, and you do that. And then you have uh, the legal reaction, and you say, oh, look, this is, this is the arm of the law, and you, you get a picture of a launch, and launches are very interesting in themselves. You know those, um, they have sort of, um, they almost little cranes. What, what do they call them with the posters, the drop-down posters? You know, they're about this high, and they say, come to UCC, great minds don't think alike, and they, you know, and you have um, no more knife crimes, something like that, those drop-down posters. And you, have, you need that paraphernalia, and then you need, um, you need a long desk with the head of the guards, the minister for justice, policymaker, um, a representative of the victims group, and somebody with a knife sticking out of their head at the other end. And you take a picture of them and you say, serious, serious, serious legal thing over there. And that's, that's a very good lecture that I'm not really giving at the moment. Okay? And then you do this, having, having talked about all of the crime, and talked about the legal response, then you insert sociologist and insert series of analyses, and that's, that's what you would do. <laughs> if, uh, if, you, if you were giving this lecture, but I'm not. I'm giving a spectacle of this lecture, I'm giving uh, an ersatz lecture in which we're not even giving the lecture, but giving the sort of the spectacle around the lecture. And it goes like this, I mean, this is how it goes. Um, the sociology, and the interesting thing is, <laughs> it's so interesting being asked by a student society because you never know what you're going to get. But especially one with a logical, criminological. In my, I used to work somewhere else, and they had a sociological society, which I think was very unpopular. Shocking. Shocking. I mean, at least you guys have crime in the name. Do you not think you'd go a bit more risque and call yourself the crime society? You'd get all the wrong people. But you know. Yeah. Anyway, so the the, the thing that you do in, in sociology, it's a standard thing you do. Uh, you turn up and you say, look at all this stuff over here, look at what people do in society, and you say, but, all the same, and you guys did this when you invited me to do this, you said, you know, crime is a lot of structural forces, um, there's a huge amount of um, these crimes that are over-egged because their moral panic is constructed around them, and the media do this, and policy and politicians do it, but more widely it represents some sort of, some sort of social a response to what's actually happening and then you do I, I'm using the word invoke here rather than quote because often you know in the whole um, in the whole show of doing sociology or doing knowledge and they do this you know the general election all week long you will trot out people some of them are called experts 
The difference between an expert and a pundit is basically one of them mentions numbers before making random wild assertion, and the other one just makes random wild assertions. You know, but the standard play for academics, you know, this is true enough of their lectures, is they will say somebody who sold an awful lot of books that nobody read says this, and somebody says the other. And you know the Stanley Cohen one probably very well. It's the moral panic and folk devils. It's about a particularly interesting case on Brighton Beach. I'll do the Wikipedia spiel here, in which there's supposed to be uh, sex and drugs and rock and roll violence and orgies on the beach, something like that. And there wasn't, you know, and because everybody's heard about it and the, the mods and the rockers went off somewhere else to drink their cans in peace and be left alone and so forth. There's another, I think, I don't know if you would encounter the work of Loïc Vacon, the wonderful French theorist, who his argument goes something like this. It's something like um, the punitive turn in politics and policy, particularly as represented by the states, but also followed on by uh, the UK and across Europe, is as the welfare state is dismantled and as inequality grows in society, this causes people to be desperate and the state doesn't respond by running a welfare state around them, but responds by criminalizing and imprisoning vast amounts of people who are just vulnerable, or something like that. And that's, um, that's very interesting. And the, 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 it, it's a very interesting kind of argument. He says something like, we live in a, a sensual state, which is, you know, sensual is a kind of hybrid of horse and man. So it's liberal for business, but it's authoritarian for people. You know, which is very interesting, very good stuff. It, it says we can't control the economy, nothing can be done about the economy, it just is a wild beast, you have to just nurse it and let it do its thing. But people and crime can deal with that, you know. Um, those are the things that you do, and you mention those things, and then you say a lot of very clever things, just like you did just now, uh, by pretending to give a lecture that I'm not giving, and then then you end up and everybody says things, they say, yeah, I agree, and what about this case? And, and you have the conversation, and it's good. I mean, it's a, it's a nice thing to do sociology. Now, now perhaps, it's not going to be a lecture. This is, this is a, a venture and a speculation more than anything else, okay? Um, the, the topic of moral panics was suggested, and I decided to put a... You know, I'm not sure, am I really in the right business? Maybe I should be making taglines for products, you know? Uh, making a spectacle, that's just my cell, you know, a nice tagline. I don't know, does it go terribly well on social media? But consider crime as a spectacle, okay? Because yes, it is, the whole idea with the moral panics is something like society reacts and overreacts to crime, making, uh, making demons out of, you know, people who are in a temper or something like that, or making uh, uh, the decline and fall of the Western world out of a little bit of debauchery. I mean, you know, and okay, that's, that's kind of quite interesting. But what I want to do here is think about crimes as being in themselves part of that whole dynamic, so that crimes are sometimes, not always, very often crimes are crimes of economics, you just need some cash, or you've got a drug addiction, you need some, and that's also an economic thing, uh, or um, there are crimes of passion, and so on and so forth, but also crimes are sometimes spectacles. Now, this is the crime I'm going to do. Do you know this crime? Yeah. So this is the, this is the frightening bit. 
Um, but you all know it already, the Anacretion case with boy A and boy B. And it's very interesting um, that you got it straight away even from the house. I didn't even have to do the pictures of her. Uh, or there's pictures of the inside of the house and they're very, they're very kind of disturbing in their way. And there's no question that this is a crime and a terrible crime and one which at the time, I mean it really was, it, re it was like um, where you'd think that people would be discussing Brexit, uh, you'd, you'd, get, you'd get a whole 20-minute slot on the crucial case in the courts, uh, week in, week out, again and again and again. And the crime, it is a crime, and it has a perpetrator, and it has a victim, and it has a witness, and there's statements and trials, and you can go on and so on and so forth and say, this is a real thing. But the interesting thing, and this is where it's, 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 it's like, I'm not on the clock, I'm not at work, but you can still sue me. But this, this, this is the thing I would venture to say. There is an extent to which this crime is uh, a spectacle, an attempt to do something which people have seen, an attempt to recreate something, a sort of form of theatrics, a kind of performance. So the crime is, is, is hideous and it involves, um, it, uh, you know, I mean, but it is an attempt by one child to recreate stuff that he sees on the internet to an extent. Now, there's more to it than that because you can talk about, you know, you can say that, well, he's a perpetrator. Is he evil? Is he psychologically damaged? Does he have all kinds of problems? But one way or another, you know, he didn't, he didn't get the idea out of his homework notebook. He didn't get the idea out of, out, of, out of his Shakespeare class that he started in the first year or something like that. He got the idea from looking at it on the internet. And the things that you're looking at on the internet, of course, he's looking at hardcore, hardcore porn and he found... Um, does anybody need all the details? Just the quick details are that there are two... There's one, there's one girl, Anna Kriegel, who is um, bullied in her local school and generally t uh, taken, uh, you know... Um, taken out on social media and, and subject to cyberbullying and all kinds of unfortunate things. So in that way, there's already this kind of strange public spectacle, mysticalness about it. A sort of, not mystical, that's the wrong word, a sort of a, a presentation, a performance. She exists for most people because they don't never get to meet her, but she exists through her YouTube channels and the fact that other people are trolling her. Uh, on, on the internet. So she exists for these two boys, even though they do kind of know her from school a little bit, but, um, or from the local area. Um, she exists mainly on a screen, which is a very odd kind of existence. Um, and she is lured, because she's a very lonely child, she's, uh, she's lured by this guy who doesn't really know them, know her terribly well. Boy B lures her to this house, and Boy B uh, wearing a murder kit of a mask and uh, various sort of shin pads and so forth, uh, assaults her, uh, strangles her, uh, kills her, beats her up, and then uh, sexually assaults her, I think, probably after she's dead. You know, it's quite horrific. Okay, so I promise to do that. Um, but, you know, he's doing that, so that's a crime, but the crime is not, the crime is not. Um, conceivable or imaginable without him having access to hardcore porn. Now, I'm not trying to stoke a sort of a moral panic about pornography here or anything like that. I'm trying to uh, point towards the way in which we must take it into account that the people that commit crimes 
or are the victims of them, live in a world that's saturated with media representations of crime. And if you are the victim of a crime, you uh, are, are newly under-focused and you can spend your time. You know the way people Google their health ailments? Like, it's like I don't feel great, you know, or whatever, and it turns out you have death or something like that. Um, Similarly, if you, if, you, in, if you undergo a mugging, you can Google up and then find out what the psychological... So people, people exist in relation to the world via the intermediary of the media. So that's the first thing. Um, she's a very mediated subject and she presents herself to the world um, on her tube, on her, on, on, on her channel, on YouTube. You have this perpetrator who has... Trying to, trying to do in real life something that isn't even real most of the time. I mean, unless you get to the very depths of the dark internet, mainly what you get. Um, not that I know. I'm a sociologist. I've read books about it only. You know, I don't watch porn of any sort whatsoever because I prefer the real world, honestly. Um, but he, mostly what you see on, 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 on the net is simulations of um, rough sex, rape and uh, murder and sex, which is, you know, it's all a bit icky, but you can get that, I'm sure, you know, except that UCC will know if we Google it here. It will not take long to find it. It exists. He's found it. So he's, he's redoing something which was pretend anyway in the first place, but then it becomes real, which is very odd. Okay. Um, so these people are very mediatized. The witness now... Um, I, the witness is Boy B, who's the younger boy who doesn't, who has who who been, I'm not really concerned with the trial terribly much, but he's been done similarly for murder because he's an accessory because he brings it to the place. What I find fascinating about him um, is that he's interviewed eight times by the guards, eight. He never tells them the same story twice. Now you can think to yourself, you can understand it, you can interpret it in different ways. Is it that he is a pathological liar? Is it that he is deliberately manipulating? Is he trying to fake psychological confusion or something like that? I think that he cannot tell the truth, you know, or that he cannot give an account of himself and the event because to him it's sort of unreal, you know. Um, it's, it's something that they planned, but when they planned it to him, it was more or less as a spectacle, and then it suddenly became real. And maybe he froze, or maybe he looked on and enjoyed it. We don't know. But the, relation, the, the relationship of this guy to the truth is um, it's kind of worrying in a way, because it's like the perpetrator, Boy A, sorry, as you call, is, is just plain evil just violent, you know, or something like that, or you can, you can fit him into one of these things. And that's, that's something that most of us will not, will not, we will not go home and wonder to ourselves, are we like boy A? You know, nobody will think to themselves, are they a potentially violent criminal? We're pretty sure that we're not, most of us, most of the time. Whereas the interesting thing about boy B is I think he's kind of symptomatic of our contemporary inability to tell the difference between truth and lies, reality and illusion, what we thought happened, what really did happen, and all these things. They're just... They're a mix in our minds. So he's, um, he's sort of symptomatic of the world of the statement, uh, the world of the spectacle as well. And so when you, when you eventually have the trial, the trial is also, you know, makes the whole thing, although it's even already a spectacle, 
it becomes a spectacle for everybody else. So we have this strange theatrical relationship to it. Right, I do have slides. Okay. Haha. See, hidden in there all the weird postmodern things to say. So I don't know if this is true or not. I don't know if these theories are particularly helpful. I've read bits and pieces of them. Some are deeply irritating, some are confusing, some of them are just too clever for their own. I'm then moving things around. Um, the book, The Society of the Spectacle, is back from the 1970s or something. This guy, Guy Debord, he's a Marxist critic who says that capitalism has replaced all authentic and real experiences with, um, with, with, with cheap imitations. They're only, um, they're inauthentic versions. So the things that happen to us are not real. Uh, they're only imitations. So, for instance, if you are friends with each other or if you fall in love with somebody, well, that's only a spectacle uh, underneath capitalism which produces all these things. Or if you buy a house, it's not a home in a way that maybe it once could have been. You know, uh, nothing, is, nothing is real anymore. That's, um, that's not a tremendously... It's an easy enough one to grasp for how complicated he makes it at times. And it also has a reasonably simple thing of true-false, authentic, inauthentic, you know? Um, the guy who makes it much more, um, much more anxiety-provoking is Jean Baudrillard, the author of uh, uh, well, several books, but especially the one uh, Simulation and Simulacra, in which he says that in the modern world there is no difference between authentic and inauthentic. Everything is a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. There's no original whatsoever. So even half, you know, we drift into saying this most of the time. It's part of our language almost to say, well, this isn't real and this here is an imitation. I've been doing that. I've almost been talking in standard kind of Guy Debord sort of things, and I've been using this word spectacle all the time. But Baudrillard would make it even worse, more complicated, because he would say that, well, none of it at any point anymore under the contemporary conditions of capitalism. It doesn't really speculate as to what was there beforehand, but maybe at one stage there was an original, and there was copies of that original, and the original was real in some way. But now, and it's the, the quoted, it's the most quoted one because it's now it's in the Matrix, or it was quoted when I was younger. Uh, Welcome to the desert of the real. There is no more real. Everything is just a simulation. Everything is just a matrix. Um, so, um, between the two of these, I think that we can make a different sort of sense of crimes, uh, contemporary crimes. And I mean, I am choosing. It's not even cherry-picking, because it's an attempt to, um, to draw out uh, the, the, the particular um, direction of spectacular crimes that is, is, is usually quite muted, because people are doing things like hiding bodies and things like that, whereas the Anacrecia case really highlights this way in which crime is a sort of strange spectacle. So. Um, Crime, if you think of it as not just an action in itself to achieve, achieve some sort of a goal or to, um, to, to, to gain money or something, not as an action itself, but if you think of it as a sort of a kind of imitation and that it in itself becomes a kind of communication, you know? So you're communicating the, uh, your experience or you're communicating um, 
power or you're expressing something. This, this thing with, 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 with Boybee, he's expressing something about himself. He's trying to, um, to live out his fantasies. And so it's, you know, it's almost like, um, it's a terrible thing to say, so I won't say it, but here we go, Shh, I didn't say it. It's like avant-garde theater, you know, breaking down the, 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 the fourth wall entirely, you know? But, um, so it, 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 it's, it's, it's a piece of theatre, it's a kind of expression, crime is communication. There was, um, before, back in the day when I was here, there was um, an interesting lecture called Kieran McCullough who said at one stage that um, all of these assaults during the late 90s, early 2000s, these assaults during the Celtic Tigers in which uh, working class kids beat up middle class kids and took their phones and stuff like that. He said, that's not crime. That's, 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 that's misdirected economic revolution. You know, that is um, uh, a sort of uh, a, a different interpretation of the crime. The crime is not, you know, violence or an attack or passion. It, 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 it's something else. It's, it's an expression of economic envy as such, an attempt to, to right inequalities by taking the phone, which is a very strange thing to say um, to victims of crimes, like, well, that's the economy, you know. Um, beyond that, beyond what, uh, beyond, beyond what he's saying, crimes of which we're, 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 we're talking, crimes that provoke moral panic are not just seized upon by the public, but they're actually an attempt to communicate to the public, you know? I mean, that one with the, the guy who was caught up in the deft and several bags around Dublin, they're communicating to people. Um, that key, I mean, it's very hard to know what they're communicating, you know? Yeah, it's very straightforward in that kind of way. But say, for instance, um, this example of working class or middle class violence, is that a form of communication oriented towards the public? In a way, we're, I'm taking too instrumental a view of, of communication here. It's not just a message, but it's it's almost like you are always, inevitably, in public. Because now, like, I mean, you're very good. You're not on your smartphones at the moment, but like, we can be at any moment in uh, in public. You know, at the moment we want to tell people something as private as my ass is itchy or something like that. There you go, straight away, and and and, and the boundary between private and public disappears. So when we spend most of our time living in a kind of imagined, imaginary public all the time. Even the guys that are in some deserted house cutting off somebody's head, in a way, they actually see themselves through film angles, through the media report that they will expect tomorrow, you know? So, um, uh, crime becomes a spectacle uh, in, in this kind of way. Law and order could also be considered a spectacle. This is, I mean, this is very plain, going back to um, uh, Stanley Cohen and, and, and Vacon. It's, you know, law, law and order talk and law and order politics is signalling uh, to say, you know, um, um, we're going to be tough on crime, we're going to make these drugs illegal, we're going to crack down on these estates, this kind of thing. But apart from that, one of the interesting things, and this is an idea I am borrowing uh, from, I'm borrowing it, I suppose, from René Girard and also Arpad Sakalsi was talking about this one of these days recently. He uh, that, um, that that sacrifices and scapegoating, um, they imply that there's a public watching them. There's no point in doing it without people watching. It's for the crowd. 
you know. Now, of course, we don't generally, the law very infrequently actually scapegoats or uh, actual people, you know, but um, that symbolic scapegoating, whereas you say um, working class people or these kind of gangs or these kind of drugs, it's, it, it's already intrinsically kind of public. And um, the other thing is when you, when you declare, um, this is from, I mentioned all my names, back to bloody back at work without noticing it, without intention, intending it, I've, I've arrived back at work. Uh, Mitchell Dean talks about acclaim, acclamation as political legitimising. So when a state says, we are doing this, we are, we demand that you recognise that we're doing this, it's a way of establishing political legitimacy and acclaiming the state as the sovereign, something uh, almost theologically endowed with power and legitimacy, not just a technocratic rule-making system. So, um, yeah, I think I, I think I did the right. I think I did the right slides for the audience that are here. I think if I'd if it'd been the wrong audience, it'd been wrong. And then somebody asked me to mention this, so I'm at work still. I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll email it to you, and you can email it around to your email list, just like that. But if you're interested in crime, this guy's doing a project. He would like to talk to young men. So there you go. Um, there we go. It's a strange, strange spectacularness of it. And note, note how that makes a kind of consumer item of, 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 of my talk. Anyway, never mind that. Uh, that's about as much as I want to say. I hope I've expressed myself clearly. Please talk. Please ask questions. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. Mm. Spectacle acclamation. <laughs>